You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. How are y'all doing today? Good morning, good morning. So my name is Scott Mahan. I am the director of 514 Student Ministries. It's my pleasure to greet y'all today. Uh, Here at Providence, we have a simple vision. That is to make the gospel unignorable in our communities. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe that that they are the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And today, we're going to be continuing our series through Mark called King and Crown, where we look at the life of Jesus and we compare it to how our culture tries to find identity apart from him. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. So if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and turn there with me. And if you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that's fine. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. But again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And if you're able, go ahead and stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow, uh, excuse me, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning. It is, wow, man. I don't know if you guys are like me. I, I guess you are, but I had way too much coffee and not enough food. And those good mornings, you guys must have done the same thing. All right. Well, my name is uh, my name is Ty Gaston. I am one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church, and it's a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, I'm really grateful that I get to continue the series, as Scott said, as we walk through the book of Mark. And uh, we, this morning, are going to be in uh, two out of three moments where the religious officials challenge Jesus and confront him in a uh, myriad of ways. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and we're just going to jump right in because we do have a lot to do, we do have a lot to cover, and I want to make sure we have adequate enough time. So if you would, bow your heads and pray with me, and we'll get started. Father God, we come before you this morning, and more than anything else, we just ask that you would still our hearts. God, there's no other place that we can go this morning for life, for refuge, for peace, or for comfort than your word. And so God, my plea is that you would speak to us. You would speak to us gently, but clearly. So God, as we uh, look to your text, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us clarity? Would you help us to see you in your unending, unconditional love and the hope that you have for us in eternity? 
God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So I really enjoy knowing where I'm going. I'm kind of a freak about it. Uh, I like having directions. I always have my phone up. Even if I know where I'm going, I still like to have it pulled up on ways uh, in my truck because I want to be able to know an approximate time of where I'm going. Sometimes if I'm feeling really froggy, I will pull up where I'm going and let Ways tell me what time I need to leave and when the best traffic times are. It's, it, I'm kind of a freak about knowing how to get somewhere, where to go, and uh, over time, when you do that, you feel like you've got a good internal map of where you're going. At least for me here in the greater North Houston, I feel like there's not too many places uh, that I don't know how to get to uh, in my own internal uh, navigation system. However, I still put up Ways, just in case, because I feel like I can make a mistake. However, I have several stories and some of, the, some of this humility that I feel in terms of knowing where I'm going um, are the result of me thinking that I could outsmart ways. And so multiple times, this was particularly whenever I was a teacher in Aldine for three years, I would have to drive from my house now in Atascacita to 45 and West Road. And on, the, on a normal Monday morning, it would take me about 50 minutes to get there with traffic. Without traffic, it's about 17 minutes, but uh, that's oddly specific. I'm sorry. It's, I've, that's been like 17 minutes, 17 minutes, 17 minutes. So I just, all right, whatever. I'm a nerd. But it takes about 50 minutes to get there. However, every now and then you'll come across this time where they say this road's closed and you need to go this way, or this road's backed up by traffic and you need to go this way. And there are several moments where I was like, what do you know? What do you know? If I go that way, it's going to take me much longer. I'm looking ahead of me. Clearly in front of me, there is no traffic. I'm just going to keep going this way because this is the fastest way. Only to turn a bend and to see exactly what they're talking about and that I made the biggest mistake of my life. You know, you, you always get like, try to get super spiritual too. You know, you're just like, well, you're not the ways, the truth and the life. What do you know? I'm sorry, that was stupid. That was dumb. But the, my point in all of this, because I, I, I'm about to make a, a, maybe a mistake, but ways is not Jesus, ways is not God. But what I will say, though, is that sometimes in our faith, we can end up doing the same thing where God has clearly made a way for us, clearly told us what to do, clearly given us direction on how uh, to follow him, and mainly that we ought to follow him but we still think we can skirt what he's called us to do and either be disobedient or delay obedience. And what we end up doing is we end up walking ourselves in larger ditches than we think that we're in. And that's what is happening here this morning whenever we uh, look at how the Sadducees are addressing Jesus. And so what we need to know before we get into the text is that the Sadducees were uh, the like religious elite of the elite. So you had a bunch of different people here at this time, and we've seen them at this point. You've had the Herodians, you had the Pharisees, and now you have the Sadducees. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees do not agree with one another. Just like Court said last week with the Herodians and Pharisees, they would never find themselves at a dinner table together. Now that while they may be the elite, they are not buds at all. And the Sadducees would have been the elite of the elite. So they're a, they're a much smaller group. They're the aristocratic group. They're the wealthy group. Um, and this is, this is the group that, uh, that included almost all of the priests, include, especially the high priest. 
he would have been in this group. These would have been the people, the Sanhedrin, the, Sa the Sadducees, that would have been the ones communicating with Rome to give Christ over. They were the ones that were really upset with who Jesus was. Now, like I said, they did not agree with the Pharisees. You see, the Sadducees were different. The Pharisees agreed with the entirety of the Old Testament. The Sadducees only agreed with the first five books of the Bible. They only agreed with the Torah. Now, that's important for how we're going to see Jesus address them because Jesus is a wizard at communication and a wizard at turning their own world upside down. And so they didn't accept, the Sadducees did not accept any oral tradition, oral law, no prophets, none of it. Uh, they only accepted the Torah. They also didn't believe in immortality. They didn't believe in spirits and they didn't believe in angels, which is also another key part for how Jesus chooses to address them. Needless to say, for the Sadducees, if it wasn't explicitly written in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, it wasn't real. And so they had a very narrow view of what it meant to follow and honor God. That also means that they, it left a lot of room for them to lead with ambiguity at some level. So let's jump right into the text. We'll get started and move forward. So Mark chapter 12, verse 18 through 23, it says this. And the Sadducees came to him, who, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, just like, honestly, right off the cuff, and I've, I've seen several pastors say this, nobody, like, if you're in a real situation, you're not making it past the third brother, right? I mean, this, this girl's crazy. She's clearly, I mean, all of you true, true crime sleuths out there, you know something's going on. Like she's poisoning the wheat. She's doing something because, or she's just a, she's a genius at getting insurance claims. One of the two, but she is likely wealthy. But what they're speaking to here is called the Leveret Law. And this would have been found in the Torah. This is actually found in Deuteronomy 25.5. Uh, it's uh, their marriage institution. And Deuteronomy 25.5 says this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to, outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, this text says that uh, if a group of brothers live together, which is conveniently left out by the Sadducees to make their argument, that... If one of them died and left no children, specifically a son, it was the duty of the next to take his brother's widow as his wife and raise up a son. Theoretically, this would go on as long as there were brothers left and as long as no child was born. And when a child was born, the child was considered not the offspring of the brother, but the offspring of the original husband. And the whole point of this law was to ensure two things. One, that the family name continued, and that two, that the property remained within the family. Now, this is a, an absolutely ridiculous analogy because the truth is, is you can make the same point with just two brothers. You don't need seven. The, the, the other five brothers literally added no weight to anything that they said. 
but they were trying to pin Jesus in a corner. Now, prior to Providence existing, uh, me, Court, and several other people were part of a student ministry, student and college ministry called Generation Ministries. And uh, every Thursday, uh, we would go to Lone Star College and we would just go, tr- go to try and talk with the students. Just talk with the college students, get to know them, tell them about Jesus, invite them to the college service that was going to be happening later on that evening and we would always end up in these interesting conversations, specifically if you went to like the, like the smoking gazebos, it always had the greatest people there. I, I absolutely loved it because you never, you never knew what you were going to get, genuinely. But they would always, conversations would always take a turn and would always result in one of the college kids trying to ask a question that would stump us. It was always going to happen. However, after doing it long enough, you start hearing the same questions over and over and over again. One of the common one was, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but this again, mind you, this is 10, 11 years ago for us. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? That was one that would always pop up. And every kid in philosophy class had this in their back pocket as that gotcha moment for for Christians. Because, well, either way, God's not omnipotent, right? Either he can't create the rock or he can't lift it. One of the two, right? Gotcha. And eventually you start getting good at at answering this question. And I would always respond back with saying that that's a ridiculous, silly question that doesn't actually provide any real conversation. And they would ask what I meant, and I would ask them a question with a similar scenario. And I would say, does your mom know that you're stupid? (laughs) And if they said no, I was like, oh, okay, so you've been able to dodge her even finding out. Or if they said yes, I was like, oh, great, you were honest, good. And they would say, oh, well, that's a ridiculous, oh, okay, I see it. And so that was, always, and that was always a dumb question that my friends and I would throw back and forth growing up. But the point of the, point of the question was to make a fool of you, not actually inquire about your, your mother's knowledge of your stupidity. And the same thing goes for their question. Their question was not actually in, to inquire about how big and powerful God is. They didn't care about that. They wanted to make a fool of the Christian. You see, like my friends growing up and the college students at Lone Star, the Sadducees wanted to humiliate Jesus, not actually inquire about resurrection theology. Jesus understood what they are doing, and he confronts it head on. And how Jesus responds would have been a direct onslaught to the Sadducees in a myriad of ways. Let's read. Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 24 to 25. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Which, by the way, I mean, no good conversation starts there. (laughs) Is this not the question you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this would have been incredibly offensive because the Sadducees built their entire existence on their knowledge of the scriptures. So to look at them and say, you don't know the scriptures would have been incredibly offensive and cut their legs out from under them. In fact, this would have been a complete brain fry in the moment for the Sadducees. Because not only are they having their expertise cut out from under them, but he starts naming things that they would have absolutely uh, disagreed with in rapid fire fashion. So you don't know the scriptures or the power of God when they rise, not if they rise. And they're going to be like angels. It's a complete brain fry in the matter of two sentences. 
In that moment, they would have short-circuited, not known what to say. I think that's why you don't hear from them after this, because they're just like, I don't even know what to do with anything that he just said. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Because he says, like I said, he says when they rise, not if. He is assuming that the resurrection is true. And then also reference angels with the Sadducees did not believe in those either. And just as a side note, the point is not that we would become angels. That's not the point. The point is that we would be so satisfied in Christ that we don't need marriage to paint the picture of our relationship with God and that there's no death. And because there's no death, there's no need for procreation. That's the reason why he would even reference this in the first place. And so he's, he's using a comment like that to paint. You don't actually know about your theology past this life. And so Jesus says two things. He says, they don't know the scriptures and they do not know the power of God. In other words, not only have they not thought critically over the very topic they claim to be an expert in, but they have so trivialized the scriptures by ignoring the power of God's word and infusing their own. Now, first of all, the first mistake that they make is they build their resurrection theology on a passage that is about marriage. Biblical uh, interpretation 101 is that context is key. You can't take a passage explicitly about one thing and build a theological position on something entirely different. That would be like putting oil on your grocery list and then using that to determine which oil you're going to put in your car when you change it. Doesn't make sense. Yes, they're both oil. One will destroy your vehicle. And if you flip them, one will destroy your life. So you cannot do that. Context is key. The second problem, though, is that they wanted to tailor what they believe based on what they felt like is right. The truth is is that they avoid what is really going on at the root of their heart by talking about a secondary issue. Does that not sound familiar? Where instead of actually talking about what is going on in our lives, we will divert it by talking about some separate thread of it. We'll start splitting hairs, talking about secondary arguments, things that don't really matter. This is what the Sadducees are doing in this moment. They're trying to play this game where God, where somehow they can discredit what he is saying altogether by pinning him in a corner with another secondary issue. Now, I I almost sympathize with the religious elite given their context, though. I understand why they wouldn't necessarily want to trust Christ right out of the gate. I mean, if they know their, their Old Testament at all, they know that when you start worshiping idols and start worshiping things that are not God, it goes really badly for you. They have plenty of stories to show that when the people of God have worshiped something other than Yahweh, things went really bad for the people of Israel. They would, go into, they would go into slavery. They would get uh, beaten and torn down, uh, pillaged. A lot of things would go really wrong for the people of God. So I understand why the religious elite who know the stories back and forth, why they would be hesitant to look at a man who's calling himself God. However, we have less of an excuse because we know who Christ is and what he has done. Friends, God is after your heart. In this moment, he is after the Sadducees' heart. He's taking a straight beeline to get there, but he is after their heart. He wants to address the core issue that is going on with them, namely that they refuse to have the humility to submit to the God that's standing right in front of them. And friends, that is what he's saying to us this morning too. 
God is after our hearts. He's not after secondary, tertiary theologies. He's not after how many gold stars we can get on our chest for doing good things. He's not after those that are in the corporate world and flourishing. He's not after, you know, professional soccer kids. He's not after any of those things. He's after your heart. And he's not going to allow you or me to skirt around the things that plague it. He will always and constantly address it. David was a good king. And David was a good king a majority of the time. He ruled well. But God did not let him get away with it just because he was a good king. A lot of people don't know this, but in, in the Old Testament, when we, we know about the story between David and Bathsheba, and we know about the story about Nathaniel uh, confronting David and you having this big woe is me moment. But what you don't know is, um, most people don't know, is that it's about a year in between those events. So David has this moment with Bathsheba where he commits adultery with her, he has Uriah killed, and he's sitting in his shame and likely pride for an entire year. And I would think that by the time Nathaniel shows up, David's probably thinking, I got it. But God doesn't let him get away with it because God is after the heart. God is going to draw us back to him at all moments. The truth is, is that we can make excuses all that we want, but they will not hold up against the God of the universe. We don't get to tailor the Bible and Christianity to fit how we want it to live. In fact, it is quite literally the opposite. Through the word, by the spirit, we are being shaped to be more like Christ. So the word is calling us away from ourselves. We don't get to be the ones on the outside trying to shape the word. It's literally the opposite of how things ought to go. The minute we try to step in and alter that plan, the worse off we will always end up. God is not keeping us from anything. God is not some uh, social prude that is trying to keep us from away of all the fun. He doesn't want all the fun stuff to go to the pagans and all the boring stuff to go to the Christians. No, he is leading us to everlasting life and the well that he is, he is leading us to will never run dry. Let's keep going. Verse number 26 says this. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Once again, this is a genius move by Christ. Not only does he address some major theological things right out of the gate and very specifically using his language to get to the heart of what they're questioning. But he also, because there's a myriad of, of resurrection tests, texts outside of uh, the first five books of the Bible. In Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Psalms, in Daniel, like there's a lot of them. But he didn't go there. He specifically went to Exodus. And he went to Exodus because he knew that they would have no ability to argue with him. If he tried to go outside of the first five books of the Bible, they would have ignored him altogether, but he didn't do that. He went to their ground. And what's interesting is that the language that's used at the burning of the bush would have stopped them in their tracks. Now, you, you might ask the question, and I did too, and honestly, don't really have a good answer for it. They should have known this. 
because they are the experts and they know this this was written in their original language we have to look at look at it and parse it out ourselves but they knew it they knew exactly what was being said so to not know this would have been ridiculous in my opinion but the truth is is that god spoke to moses and said i am the god of abraham and the god of isaac and the god of jacob he did not say i was the god of abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says, I am, implying that I still am. I still am the God over your fathers that came before you. They're still alive right now, and I'm still their God. It's an incredible passage that holds a lot of weight for us. So he's saying, not only do you not know what you believe, but you are missing out on the true life that exists in believing this. Now, the truth is that Paul spends a large portion of his first letter at the church of Corinth talking about this very issue, talking about the resurrection, because people were questioning it there too. They also questioned this topic um, and wanted to relegate its importance to a secondary or tertiary issue, but Paul doesn't allow for that. In fact, he goes on to say that as far as if the resurrection isn't true, that means that if, if there is no res resurrection of the dead, then Christ also is not raised. And if Christ isn't raised, then you and I are still in our sins. And even more than that, not only are we still in our sins, but we ought to be pitied because we're wasting our life. He goes on to say that if, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, if we're not going to be raised from the dead, then let's just go eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just go have a good old time. And this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at whenever he said that Christianity can only be of the utmost importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. It's either not important at all or it's really, really, really important. Because eternity is at stake. You can't think about eternity and think about it in a moderate way. There's no way. Because if there is something past this life, then we have to consider what that looks like if we don't agree with what it's saying about it. And we have to consider what it means to walk in obedience as well. But Paul knows that this isn't true. And he concludes that portion in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, in verse number four, 34, saying this, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. And his point is simple. If we are going to call ourselves followers of Christ, then God will require from us our whole selves, not just the parts that we desire to submit. We don't get to reason our way into the kingdom. We're either obedient or we're not. There's no other category. And we have to consider that. We're either obedient or we're not. Trying to, do, uh, trying to do so where we are reasoning ourselves into the kingdom puts us in a drunken-like stupor where we will make catastrophic decisions. When you think about someone who is drunk and how they make decisions and what happens as a result of those decisions, it usually doesn't go well. Paul is saying that when we don't believe in the resurrection or we don't believe in the fullness of Christ and that we ought to be obedient to him, when we don't follow him wholly, we are like those in a drunken stupor. 
where the only decisions that we can make are usually poor, and if they end up good, it's because God is very gracious. Martin Luther said it this way when he was talking about the Sadducees and their desire in their drunken stupor to pin Jesus in a corner. He said this, in like manner, we should not worry about our, that our doctrine will fail and be put to shame. For let, uh, for let even all the wise and prudent of the world together rise up against the word of God. They overlook the joke that they opposed it, that it took place for their sake. It may indeed happen that they may howl and bite and snap against it uh, so that the people think the gospel will fail. But when they set themselves against it and wish to overthrow it, then it is certain that they are weak. For by the same trick they wish to seize and take Christ, they themselves are finally caught. In other words, it is a fool's game to try and destroy the very thing or undermine the very thing that is going to save you. Not realizing that you are walking into a snare, you think to avoid it. And so in other words, if we are going to follow Christ fully and wholly with our whole selves, we can't get to this point where we are playing games with him. We are playing games trying to reason our way out of following him in a complete way. We need to have the humility to submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God and trust that his way is better than ours. We need to be able to trust that what awaits us is far greater than any future that we could create on our own. And that is the hope that we have in him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 35 through 39. And this may be familiar for you, but it's timely for us this morning. Because sometimes in our lives, things just don't go the way that we ought to. And instead of reasoning our way out of them, we have to lean on the hope that we have in Christ. Because, friends, this world will fail us. It's going to. It's not, this is one of those scenarios where it's not if, it is when. It is going to. And when things do not go our way, what is the light that guides us? It has to be the hope that we find here in this text. It says this. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an incredible text. That when we can't see not three inches in front of us, what we do know that we have beyond that is our hope in Christ. And there's nothing that can separate that. No chasm, no trial, no tribulation, nothing that is there. It is sure. It is an anchor that we can always bank on. That is what we look to. Not the best life that we can construct on this side of heaven, but the future life we have in Christ. When we find our rest in Christ, there is nothing that jumps in the way of God's unending love for us. And when we try to find rest outside of that, it's like walking across the Everglades at night. You guys, I mean, just as a side note, have you seen any of these videos? 
of some of these jokers walking across the Everglades in Florida at night with all these Burmese pythons and crocodiles. It is a wild scenario. We're like walking across the Serengeti at night with prowling lions. It is not going to go well. When we try to walk outside of Christ, that is what this is like. That is what happens. My petition is for us, and I include myself here too, is to stop playing games with the God of the universe. Stop making the silly efforts to reason our way out of being obedient. I say that to myself. This week was a hard week for me to wrestle over this text because I just kept seeing myself in it. Instead, let's look to the God that was so perfectly obedient on our behalf and trust that he will keep us even in our bleakest of moments. And when we lose hope on earth, friends, let's allow our hearts to look beyond this world to the kingdom that God is building for us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and I don't know if it's anyone else here in this room, but for me, I come with a heavy heart, knowing the areas that I have been disobedient, knowing the areas I have not followed you. I have trusted in myself. I have trusted in my own abilities. God, I just ask that you would help us this morning. Guide us, direct us. Where we fail, would you extend us grace and mercy? Don't allow the enemy to sink his fangs into our souls when we make a mistake. But God, help us to feel the overwhelming love that you have extended to us in Christ. God, help us to not try and reason our way out of not being obedient. God, where the enemy may tempt us, would you give us the clarity of mind, the clarity of mind to follow you, the clarity of mind to have the fortitude to be strong, And God, would you give us your spirit, the strength of your spirit to be faithful. God, we can't do this apart from you. It's the only work that you have. So God, we need you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.